Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 3. I count tonight a privilege. Uh, There are many times, as I've mentioned already, where we will, throughout the course of our series in Jeremiah, be able to focus in on the positive attributes of our Lord. Tonight is one such occasion where we get to simply pause, as it were, and reflect upon the character of God in a positive manner. The prophecies can be a little tough sometimes. Prophetic books can be a little tough because there's a lot of judgment. Uh, There's a lot of repent. There's a lot of you're doing evil. There's a lot of these things. Um, But as we've mentioned already several times, the prophecies of repentance and the statements of God's judgment and God's wrath and God's holiness are not divorced from God's love, God's mercy, God's loving kindness, God's tenderness, God's long-suffering. And tonight, we consider the ever-enduring love of God. This is the essence of our creed, the thing upon which we have rested our lives, the foundation of every thought and action. It is our lives, the love of God. We're going through five verses this evening in Jeremiah 3. And by God's grace, as we walk through these five verses, it will help us to plumb the depths deeper of our understanding and appreciation for the love of God. Yes, God is just. It is incumbent upon us to hear about and to learn about the deep necessities of obedience and of faithfulness, to labor for reward, for indeed, reward is coming. But it must all indeed be founded upon motivated by a deep love for God. And any love for God is founded upon and motivated by the degree to which we understand from the Word of God, God's enduring love for us. And that's what we consider this evening. I hope it will be encouraging to you. I'm looking forward to preaching it. We begin in chapter 3, verse 1 of Jeremiah. The Bible says, They say, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he turn, return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. God hearkens back to a principle here. As he speaks to the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, And he hearkens back to a principle that's found in the law, meant in part to protect women from the whims and fancies of the impulses of man. Women did not have a a great amount of power in the culture, and yet all throughout God's law, we see various laws that were enacted in order to protect women in various ways. And one of the laws that was enacted to protect women were the laws surrounding divorce, the very reality of divorce and then the laws that surrounded divorce. Secondarily, it's also meant to establish truths as it relates to the relationship between God and His people. The principle that God is speaking of here is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In verses 1 through 4, we read this. 
When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she found no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, which would have been the requirement for uh, a bill of divorcement, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So the scenario as it plays out in the text is this. A man marries a woman, after which the woman is revealed to have some uncleanness within her. Generically, this would be some moral impurity that would imply that the woman married a man under false pretenses, that he expected her to be pure, she is not pure, or that she lacked virtue in a manner that the man had not previously known about, and now he learns of her lack of virtue, and he, he counts her to be defiled. A good example of this situation, where the woman finds no favor because of impurity, would be the situation between the betrothed Joseph and Mary, where Joseph has betrothed uh, is betrothed unto Mary, and then Mary is found with child, not of him. And so an un- impurity, a, a, um, a uncleanness is found in her, at which point the man has some options. Obviously, with Mary's particular impurity, he had the option of, st- of having her stoned uh, because of the nature of, of that impurity. But uh, that would be kind of the idea here. Now, it's important to note that perhaps as we would expect in a legalistic society such as Israel's, the principle had been perverted so that men felt justified in divorcing women for every offense. This was not what God intended, but this is how the nation had uh, taken the law and because they were a legalistic society, said, well, the law is king, right? And the law is binding. And so they began to reinterpret the law and wiggle their way through the law to be able to allow the law to be in effect while simultaneously breaching everything that the law stated. And so they had gotten to the point where anything and everything was a grounds for divorce, that any uncleanness, uh, so much as uh, she burned dinner, whatever it might be, were grounds for divorce. That being said, however, this was not the original intent of the law. The original intent of the law was that the bill of divorcement would only be valid in a situation where there was a true, justifiable uncleanness that was found, whereby this man w- was in a, a place where uh, he felt as though she had lied to him or she was being uh, unjust toward him and that he wanted to put her away. Now, within this scenario, the man writes a bill of divorcement, and so he puts his wife away. The bill of divorcement was, in fact, a protection for women, enabling a man to marry her in purity, though she had been previously married. So it was, a, it was a, a means by which for a woman to be able to be released from her husband so that she could go and marry another. This was very necessary in the culture of the day because a woman really had a very hard time sustaining herself. She couldn't just go out and get a job, right, and live as a single woman. And so she 
greatly depended upon a husband who would take care of her. And as such, the bill of divorcement was a means by which to protect women in the situation where a man would put her away in order that, that another godly man, a man who was not just a man of ill repute or whatever it might be, could justifiably marry her without himself becoming defiled. So this woman goes and she marries another man who also rejects her and writes a bill of divorcement and puts her away, or within the scenario, that second man dies. So either one of these scenarios, either that second man dies, so the woman is released that way, or the other man writes a bill of divorcement and releases her. One way or another, she is again released. She is again made free by the law. According to the law, the first husband under no circumstance, could remarry her. So there's a practical idea here and there's a spiritual idea here. Practically speaking, God never actually took divorce off the table, though he absolutely hates it, right? We know that God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, for one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. God calls divorce here violence, not necessarily in the physical sense, but violence to the love and commitment which marriage is intended to represent. Violence as well to the picture of what marriage is intended to be. That being said, the Bible says God did in the law allow for divorce, right? He allowed for the concept of a bill of divorcement, though he hates it. And we read about why God allowed for it in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 8, we read this. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Do you see how it is here? That, that whereas in the Old Testament it says, If an uncleanness is found in her, their question is, Is it lawful to put away a wife for every cause? Right? So there's a debate going on here about what the law means. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, two, but one flesh. What God therefore hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That was the end of his answer. Is it, is it right? Is it justifiable? Can we put away a, a woman for any reason? Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any reason? Jesus says, the, the scriptures say this. Man leaves his father and mother, cleaves into his wife. They are one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. End of, end of answer, right? That's the end of the answer. Then they ask a follow-up question. Why did Moses then command to give writing of divorcement? Jesus' answer to, is it lawful to put away a wife? Jesus says, no, it's not lawful. No, that's not what God wants. No divorce is not ever condoned by God. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They say, well, then why did Moses command the writing of divorcement? Why did, God, why did Moses allow in the law a, a woman to be put away if this is the law of God? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus said that God suffered there to be a bill of divorcement because of the hardness of hearts. Because people are so terribly sinful and hard-hearted, so deeply struggle to do what is right, Divorce is the lack, it's the result of a lack of humility on the part of at least one party. They get it in their minds that they are what matters most, whether that be the abusive man who, falls, uh, who, who fails to love his wife, 
or whether that be the selfish woman who fails to love and regard her husband, divorce is the product of a failure of character, of spirit, or morality. Now, we live in an imperfect world, and to that end, sometimes divorce is necessary. It's never right, it's never okay, but in a world of sin, it sometimes does happen. Divorce is the fruit of sinful man. But God designed in the law a system for divorce that was intended to slow down the process, to cause people to think, to produce repentance, and to protect the innocent party, most usually the woman, from injustice, impulsiveness, and abuse. To that end, God did allow for divorce within the law as a means by which to to protect But he also slowed down the process of divorce dramatically within the law as a means by which to cause the man and the woman, the parties, to produce repentance rather than to end in divorce. Make no mistake, though, divorce is not God's design. And to that end, there are consequences. One of the reasons why God hates divorce so very much is because it mars the picture that it's intended to reflect spiritually speaking. The spiritual picture according to Ephesians chapter 5, is that marriage is a representation of Christ and his church. All throughout the Old Testament, we see marriage as a representative representative relationship of the Father and the nation of Israel, right? Consequently, this is why the culture of rebellion hates marriage so much. For the same reason they hate the moral law of God, for the same reason they hate family. Why is it that a culture of rebellion wants to see marriages dissolved? encourages the the, the free dissolution of marriage, encourages there to be no hindrances, no no roadblocks. Why is it? It's it's the same reason why the culture of rebellion hates family, wants to see there to be no roadblocks for abortion and such. It's because it's the same reason why they hate the concept of a day of rest, why they hate gender roles in society, why they hate marriage, because marriage reflects God. It reflects the love and commitment of two becoming one. It reflects a relationship where one is the head and the other is a loving, joyful, submissive party. They hate that. The culture of rebellion hates that. This is the picture of the father's relationship to Israel. And we'll see all throughout Jeremiah, this picture of the father and Israel, the father saying that he has betrothed Israel to himself, this picture of marriage. It's also a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Each party knows their role and dedicates themselves to personal faithfulness to their role. Christ dedicates himself to be the head of the body, to protect the body, to love the body, to provide for the body. The church dedicates himself to be the body, to be the submissive party, to follow the head, to align with the head, to seek in every circumstance to honor and glorify the head, which is Christ. Christ's role as a faithful leader, provider, protector, caring for his church. The church's role as a faithful, submissive, obedient, and honoring spouse. Lives out Christ's vision and honors Christ in all things. As each party steps into the union with an understanding of his or her role, determination to work those roles out faithfully, there is joy. A functioning marriage is one of the first and primary lessons then that exists in society to teach the next generation of Christ. And a marring of that picture through divorce 
the idea that the, the head can sever himself from the body or the body can sever herself from the head is a marring of that picture, something which Christ will not do, which is divorce his spouse. is realized in the concept of divorce. Not to mention, of course, it threatens to tear apart the lives of those who must endure the pain that it brings. Now back to Deuteronomy 24. The focus of the prohibition is that a man, once he's put away his wife, if she were to become available again through some circumstance, either divorce or the husband dying, he may not take her again to be his wife. By prohibiting this remarriage, what the law is attempting to do is force a man to slow down, to search his own heart, and determine that this woman that he had married, that he's ready to put away, he may never have again. Now, without this, the guy may say, okay, I'll put her away, and then when she gets on the market again, I'll just pick her back up if I want to. The law says you can't do that. And it's intending to slow the man down. Whether or not reconciliation ever happened, there's a deeper principle at play here in relation to divorce in the Old Testament. And the principle is this, that if a man intended to put away a woman for something for which he would be willing to overlook, should he ever desire reconciliation, right? So there's some uncleanness in her, so I'm putting her away for that uncleanness. The law is saying you should not put her away unless that uncleanness is so egregious that you would never, ever, ever want reconciliation, and if you come to a point where you say, well, I guess I'm willing to overlook that uncleanness to marry her, then you never should have put her away to begin with. And so it's, it's telling a man, think through this closely and carefully. Make sure that, that the thing for which you're putting her away is so egregious that you would not under any circumstances want her back, being willing to now overlook that uncleanness because you can't have her back. And that should cause the man to say, well, it's probably not actually that bad. I'm going to keep her. I'm not going to put her away. Slow down the process. Bring about repentance. To this end, the standard for, a, 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 for, the standard for divorce, the standard for an uncleanness found in her would be something that is unreconcilable. Such as the person, uh, personality issues, bad habits, character flaws, incompatibility. These things are reconcilables, not unreconcilables. Those are things that a man should say, well, I can work through those. But rather, irreconcilable things should be the things for which he should put her away, if at all. Only the things for which a man ought to even consider putting away his wife would be for those unchangeable uncleannesses that will taint the relationship and mar trust perpetually, unfaithfulness and such. Even then, divorce would be considered right under the law, or not, not be considered right, excuse me, be considered permissible under the law, but not right under the law. I hope that makes sense. To this end, if men in the land were indiscriminately divorcing their spouses for reasons which are trite, so that in time, if circumstance allowed, they'd be willing to be reconciled under her, then she should um, not be divorced to begin with. And I hope that, that this idea is making sense. This is what the law was intending to do. I'm not teaching about what we are supposed to think today, right? I'm teaching about what the law was intended to do. God says then, to remarry under these circumstances would be to cause the land to sin. Now, again, obviously I'm speaking about Old Testament principles here. 
We do not operate under Old Testament principles. The teaching that Jesus gives as far as divorce is significantly uh, more is significantly heightened from what we find in the Old Testament. That being said, um, I'm not going to get into all of the teaching on divorce tonight, as far as what what it it how it plays out in the New Testament. I've taught on it many times before. I have a write-up on it, if any of you would like to read that write-up and have not done so. And I will, of course, preach it at some other time. So I just want to let you know I'm not going to be getting into all of what we believe and what the Bible teaches toward the church on divorce tonight. It's kind of outside the scope of, of, of our focus. But there is no scenario given in the New Testament where divorce is right. It does not preclude scenarios where divorce might happen, but there are no scenarios where divorce is right. To that end, Paul does give a clear principle in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16, and this is what I will say on the topic tonight. Uh, The Bible says this, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Notice here, in this case, in the New Testament case, the Bible says if a person divorces, then, then they should remain unmarried or be reconciled to the spouse. So the New Testament principle actually reverses the Old Testament claim that you may not be reconciled to your spouse and says, if you do get divorced, the only circumstance in which you can be remarried is if you remarry the same person you divorced, right? And let not the husband put away his wife, verse 12, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If thy brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace." For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? So the principle here are several fold. First, take careful note that we're speaking only in the context of believers. Unbelievers have no part in God's commandments to the church. Second, the deepest essence of the command is that the husband and wife are never to depart. Third, if there ever is a divorce, the parties are expected to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their spouses. This would include a believing woman who then would effectively be treated as a widow indeed in the church in a society where women still did not have the right to work prevalently. She'd be treated as a widow uh, or be reconciled under her husband. And just for clarity, a few more points here. Within a Christian marriage of two believing spouses, this command is not um, that uh, the, the command to not divorce is effectively absolute. That there's never a scenario that, that the New Testament gives where two believing spouses are, are, are to divorce, are allowed to divorce. There should be nothing within the lives of two Holy Spirit and dwell believers that cannot be solved through humility, love, repentance, and the Holy Spirit. In cases, however, where one of the spouses is a believer and the other one is an unbeliever, there is a scenario that Paul gives here where divorce might happen. We would include here cases where one of the spouses is in fellowship and perhaps the other claims to be a believer but is walking completely in unrepentant sin outside of, of the word of God so that we would count them to be an unbeliever. We'd probably add them to this list here. If in these cases the unbelieving spouse departs from the believing spouse, the believing spouse is under no obligation to seek reconciliation with the unbelieving spouse. Yet, Paul specifically says, let them remain unmarried 
or reconcile to their spouse if their spouse were to find repentance. To this end here, we do see that the standard is quite different. There being no circumstance where divorce would give license for another to be married within the context of the church and teaching. And of course, if they are to be married after a divorce, they're to be remarried to the same person in direct contradiction to the Deuteronomy 24 teaching. Now, with all of this context, we return to Jeremiah. God says that if a man were to put away his wife and become another man's, he cannot take the woman back, that this would pollute the land. God says, they have played the harlot with many lovers, speaking of Judah. He says, you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet he says, return unto me. What is this? Is God saying that he's going to break his own law here? No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's painting a much more beautiful picture than that. The idea is not that God has put them away for their whoredoms and now he's decided to take them back. Instead, God is saying, though you have committed many whoredoms, though I have found uncleanness in you, I'm not putting you away. I'm not putting you away. That's what he's telling them. Though I have found uncleanness in you, I am not putting you away. Instead, I'm calling you to return to me. This idea, the picture that God is giving here is very reminiscent of what we find in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a man, a prophet, commanded by God to take unto him a wife who was an unfaithful woman. So we read in uh, in Hosea uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. For the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. So Hosea is told to marry a woman named Gomer. Whether she was already an unfaithful woman or whether God had told Hosea that she would become an unfaithful woman, we don't really know. Hosea married her knowing what she would become or what she was already. He's marrying an unfaithful woman and she is in fact unfaithful. They do have two children together one named Loruhama and another named Loami. At some point, Gomer flees, leaving Hosea and living a life of an adulteress. But Hosea was called to love her still. We skip to Hosea chapter 3 and we read this in verses 1 through 3. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend. Yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an omer of barley and for a half omer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Gomer never, or Hosea never put Gomer away. Gomer left Hosea. She fled from Hosea, but Hosea never put her away. And the Bible tells us that Gomer ends up, as many women uh, who were harlots did at that time, she ends up on uh, effectively the, the slave block to be auctioned off as a piece of meat. She, owns, she ends up a slave. And she is going to be auctioned off in this slave manner. She is enslaved as an adulteress. She's worth very little in society. But Hosea extends his love toward her. 
So she's already his by right, right? I mean, he's married her. She's married to him. She is his by right. And Hosea goes to this slave market, this auction block, and he buys her with 15 pieces of silver and an omer and a half of barley. And he tells her this. You are mine now by right and by purchase. You're mine by right because you married me. Now you're mine by purchase because I have purchased you back to myself. I own you doublefold now. You don't go play the harlot anymore. I have married you and now I have purchased you. You're no longer a harlot. You're my wife and you're mine forever. And by the way, not only are you mine, but I'm yours. The faithfulness remained a two-way street. Carry this thought now into Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. God says, I have not put you away. You have played the harlot with many lovers, but return again to me. It will not be until next week that we'll see the prophecy of their purchase back to the Lord work its way to Messiah and the cross. But our focus is going in a different direction, so let's just lay it out this week. God has loved them. They have strayed. They have adulterated themselves. They have rebelled against the Lord. But God has not put them away. God has not severed ties. He has loved them through their adultery. And on this day, in the days of Jeremiah's pleadings, God is yet willing to open his arms and receive them back to himself. It's beautiful. It's the love of God. So we continue in verse 2. God says, Lift up thine eyes upon, uh, unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lying with. In the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. So God tells him, Look around. Look at every pagan worship system. Look at every high place that you can find. Look at every pagan god and every pagan culture. Which one of them have you not defiled yourself with? He says, you have defiled yourself with all of them. He says, they've sat in the way as the Arabian in the wilderness. The picture is of a harlot who sits along a common traveling highway to entice travelers. Similar to what we uh, find in Genesis with Judah, right? And um, the idea that, that there were, were women that were sitting by the way for travelers and they would prostitute themselves like Tamar in the days of Judah. So too, the nation of Judah, God says, you're like one of those women who sits by the way and anyone that comes by, you'll prostitute yourself with them. God tells them they've polluted the land and this is all within the warning that they will be removed from the land unless they repent. So he says in verse three, therefore the showers have been withholden and there has been no latter rain. And thou hast a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. The consequences of their rebellion have been grave upon the land. Let us always remember that our actions have consequences. Actions always have consequences. That we sow and we reap what we sow. And that when we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. In the case of the nation of Israel, they were given physical promises of blessing. And there were also physical cursings for disobedience. So the physical promises that they were given for blessing, God says, if you, uh, for obedience, excuse me, if you obey, God says, I will bless you. There will be no plagues in the land. You will not be barren. 
in the land. Uh, there will be several other such the like. There will be uh, no famines. Uh, your crops will grow. We'll, you'll be protected from your enemies, these sorts of things. God tells them thus that they bear the marks of harlotry, that, that their physical disobedience brought the marks of their disobedience. There was drought in the land. The showers had been withheld. There was no latter rain in the land for their crops. He says that they have a whore's forehead. The picture here is unclear. Perhaps it's the idea, as we look at many cultures throughout the world, uh, characteristically prostitutes had shaved heads. And this was one of the marks of a prostitute in many cultures uh, throughout history. And so maybe that's the idea, is that their foreheads are exposed because they have the shaved heads. Uh, they, they, they have exposed themselves as harlots. Perhaps the idea is as well, another theory is that they are hard-faced. If you've ever looked at a person who lacks virtue, you can see it on their faces oftentimes. Uh, they say that the eyes are the window to the soul, and there's a certain hardness on the faces of some people, those that lack virtue. Either way, the point is that all of this is evil, that through all of their unfaithfulness, the nation was not ashamed. There was no recognition of their sin. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. God says that I have punished you. I have withheld rains from you. you. You bear the marks of your harlotry, but you have not repented. You've refused to be ashamed. Verse 4 and 5. He says, Wilt not thou, Will thou not from this time cry unto me, my father? Thou art a guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. There's a change in tense here that needs to be explained. We, notice we go from thou to my father and he. God asks, wilt thou not from this time cry unto me? And the content of that cry should be this. God says, will you not cry to me, my father? Thou art, a, uh, thou art the guide of my youth. That's what God wants them to cry. My Father, Thou art the guide of my youth. God is asking them to cry unto Him as a Father and as a guide and to come back to God's wisdom and God's love. And within this cry, the people of God can ask themselves. So He says, Will you not cry to me, my Father, Thou art the guide of my youth? And then say to themselves, Will He reserve His anger forever? Will He keep it to the end? Do you see the change in tense here? So thou art the guide of my youth speaking to God and then them kind of speaking to themselves. Will he, will God, will he reserve his anger forever? This is what should be going through their minds. In their hearts should be the conviction that the Lord will not maintain his anger, that if they cry unto him, God will show mercy, that he is ever merciful and eager to forgive and ready to restore, because he is. But that's not what's going through their minds. Instead, God says, that thou, that would be them, Israel at this point again, Judah, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. In other words, instead of what going through your mind is, my father, would you be my guide? Will he reserve his anger forever? He'll show repentance if I ask for it, right? This should be the longing of their heart. Instead, what's going through their mind? As much evil as they can possibly think of. Every evil thing possible. 
every evil thing they can possibly do. That's what's going through their minds. Such was the state of the nation, even in the days of Josiah, a king of obedience before the Lord. We finished our exposition. We're going to get into our application now. Our application is going to be very pointed. I'm not going to focus on Israel's rebellion tonight. I'm not going to focus upon that. We've seen it. We'll see it again. In our time of application, I would like to be very single-focused. Beneath all of these exhortations unto righteousness and obedience is a layer which is not only foundational, but is a concept worth our meditation and worthy of a priority within our thoughts. I hope you wake up in the morning, you go to bed at night, you live your day with this priority being foundational to your life. That God so loved the world. I hope you wake up remembering how much God loves you. I hope it encompasses the essence of your day. I hope it undergirds the choices that you make. I hope it is the contentment with which you go to sleep so that you can say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. I echo my favorite verse of the song, The Love of God, this evening. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Contemplate the kind of love that would relentlessly pursue the unpursuable. Contemplate the kind of love that would relentlessly love the unlovely. Consider a person who needs nothing, who needs nothing, who is dependent upon no one, and yet has chosen, compelled by nothing but the deepest love, to pursue those who hated him, to pursue those who spurned him, to pursue those that sought even to challenge his authority, to stand against him, to change him, to depose him. Consider the love of a God who sent his son to die for us. Truly, this is the kind of love that a parent feels for a child, that a spouse ought to feel one for another. A love which transcends actions, and rests entirely upon the determination that I am going to choose to love. This love, declared in Jeremiah 3 through the pleading of God for reconciliation, manifest in Hosea through the redemption of Gomer from the slave market of her own adultery and fornication. all points to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Of which we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Think on these words with me this evening. Rest your minds upon the faithful fullness of God's love toward you. Consider the lengths to which God went to buy you back to himself. Consider the sacrifice of God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ on the cross, which above all else, quantified the Father's love for us in that he allowed his only begotten son to go to the cross to die for you. Meditate upon the loving submission of God's Son who allowed Himself to be led to the cross, weeping in the garden, tears, bleeding. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. Consider the depth of that love on your behalf. Consider this Savior who submitted himself to the deepest of shame and contempt, though he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Consider this Savior who submitted himself to death, who died for you. Don't get over that statement. Don't allow yourself to get over that statement. Boy, it's trite. It can get so trite, can it? Jesus dies for you. We say it all the time, but it's not trite, is it? It's not at all. We sing about uh, the, the old rugged cross, and we sing about the, 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 the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you washed in the blood? The blood that makes whiter than snow. We, we have this, these images, and these images are kind of strange, aren't they? Being washed in Christ's blood. The, the cherishing the old rugged cross, this instrument of pain and of suffering. But don't ever get over the fact that the cross is our glory. Don't ever get over what the shed blood of Jesus Christ did for you. Don't ever get over that phrase, Christ died for you. I mean, imagine the impact of that in this life. If we weren't so distant from it, imagine the impact of someone dying for you. Imagine the impact of somebody jumping in, in front of a bullet for you. Imagine the impact of someone pushing you out of the way of the car and getting hit themselves. Imagine the impact of a life for a life transaction. And don't let it get old. Don't let it get stale that Christ died for you. Don't let it get trite that Christ died for you. And why? that he might bear the wrath of God for sin. That he might die. That he might be separated from the Father. That he might be made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That you might be reconciled unto God. Such is the statement of God's love for us in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world 
that we might live through him. Hear it in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. We are perhaps from time to time tempted to forget or to overlook the foundation of our faith, the motivation for our obedience, the compulsion of our love. Young people, from time to time you might be tempted to roll your eyes and say, okay, I guess I'll do that. Or because dad would be disappointed or mom would be disappointed or what would pastor think? Or because I don't want to get in trouble. Let us remember why it is that we joyously do what's right. Let us remember why it is that we seek the right. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This evening, we respond to the call to renew in our minds the reality of God's love toward us. Undeserved is his love toward us. Unmerited is his love toward us, but as real as anything in this world or the next. More real than the chairs you're sitting in, than the Bibles you hold in your hand. More real than the people that you are surrounded with that love you is the love of God to you. So great is the Father's love for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were living according to the power, prince of the power of the world. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, in sins, hath made us alive, quickened us together with Christ. By grace, ye are saved. That's love. God so loved the world and hath raised us up together and hath made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There was a day when you walked in the darkness of your own heart, alienated from the life of God through your own sin by your own choice. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved you, even when you were dead in your sins, has quickened you with Christ. By grace, ye are saved.
This is a love beyond all reckoning of love. This is divine love. This is the love of God for you. All that I am, I owe to thee, the song says. Your precious blood has made me free. God's promised seed was born in me the day I knelt at Calvary. And on that day, the cross of death became my life, my every breath. My guilt and shame were wiped away. All that I am, I owe your grace. Now my hope rests beneath a tree. Your choice of love was proved to me. No greater gift could buy me grace. All that I am is why you gave. No greater love has ever been manifest. God so loved the world. And that brings us to a point of decision. Throughout every generation, it has brought men and women to points of decision that God so loved the world, that God has reached into this world in love to redeem mankind back to himself. And the first and most important question is, is the love of God yours this evening? Have you ever come to the place in your life where you have recognized that you are a sinner, separated from God, alienated from the life of God? Maybe you're still that in Ephesians chapter 2, living according to the prince of the power of this air, living in, in the spirit of disobedience, and you have never come to the place where you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have never responded to the loving call of God to be saved. If you have never done that this evening, have you, throughout the course of these last few minutes as we've read the Scriptures, come to a recognition of how much God loves you, of how desperately God desires a relationship with you. So much He loved you that He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for your sins, and you are a sinner, as we all are, and have come short of the glory of God. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, has quickened us together, has given us the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. So that the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day in victory over the grave, that He's coming back for His own? And if you will invest your whole heart in that message unwavering, placing yourself entirely, up, uh, your, 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 your uh, future, your um, eternity entirely upon the truth claims of Christ that He has paid your debt, He has taken your shame, then you will be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never done that, may I encourage you to make today the day. But most of us in here are believers. For we who are in Christ... Let us remember the love of God this evening. Let us remember that God so loved the world and let this be your everything. Allow it to sink into the very essence of your being and be changed. Marvel at His love. Weep at His love. But above all, respond to His love. The Christian life is not a life of fear. 
It is not intended to be a life of fear. It's not intended to be a life of shame. It's not intended to be a life of guilt. The Christian life is not about going from bush to bush, hoping that God doesn't see what you're doing and strike you dead. The Christian life is not about waking up every day and wondering how I'm going to fail God today. The Christian life is not about me walking around in shame because I just can't measure up. You can't measure up. That's the whole point. The point is that Christ measured up for you. That's the point. The point is that as we go about our day, yes, we sin. And when we sin, we need to confess that sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the point, the very essence of the Christian life, the power of the Christian life, the message of the Christian life is that there is therefore now no condemnation. That we don't live in guilt and shame. That we don't rest under a constant pressure because Jesus Christ has taken from us the shame and the guilt. He has borne it on the cross. We live not in shame and in guilt. That is not the motivation for what we do. We are motivated by love. Love is the motivation of the Christian life. Love is why we do what we do. Love is why we don't do what we don't do. Love is why we say what we say and don't say what we don't say. Love is why we love the brethren. We love the brethren because we love God. We forgive the brethren because God has forgiven us. We give to the brethren because God has given to us. We take God's love and we say, God has loved me, so I am going to love others. God has loved me, so I am going to serve God. Paul calls it my reasonable service. And indeed it is. We love him because he first loved us. Christian, is love the theme of your life? Is that what makes you as a Christian tick? Or is it something else? Guilt, shame, fear. Is that what makes you tick? If so, you're going to have a pretty unpleasant life. And you're probably going to become a hypocrite. Because guilt, shame, and fear can only take you so far and then you just look for ways around it. The Christian life, the the essence of the Christian life, the genuineness, the authenticity of the Christian life, the thing that sets us apart, the thing that makes us not a religion but a relationship is the fact that we have responded to the love of God and that we respond in turn. That when somebody says, why do you do what you do? You say, I do it because I love God. I do it because I love God. Why do you wear what you wear? Why don't you wear what you don't wear? Why do you go where you go? Why don't you go where you don't go? Why do you do what you do? Why do you think the way you think? What, what, why is this difference? Are you afraid that God's going to strike you dead if you don't? No, I'm not. I'm not. I don't do it out of fear. I don't run from bush to bush wondering if God's going to strike me dead. I do it because I love Him. Because I love Him. Because I love God. And because I love God, I want to obey Him. I trust His love for me. I trust that He has my best interests in mind. If God says it, I believe it because I know He loves me. Because He has sent His only begotten Son to die for me. That's love. He wouldn't have done that if He didn't love me. But He loves me. And if He loved me enough to send His Son to die, then He's not going to do, He's not going to then ask of me things that are not in my best interest. He's not then going to leave me and abandon me. He's not then going to stand up in heaven and laugh as I grope in the darkness. And he's certainly not going to be the hard taskmaster who rules me with a prodding iron. That's not how God brought me to him. 
God went out of his way to call me unto him. God sent his son to die for me. God could have hit me over the head and dragged me into his kingdom, but he didn't. He called me out of his love. Look, God is a God of love. Are you living, Christian, your life in response to that love? Are you living love back? Is that why you do what you do? The love of God is a love that compels us to serve him and it makes his commandments not grievous. It's the kind of love that we all, every parent hopes a child has for them where the parent does not have to rule with an iron fist because the parent has children that love them and so the children trust them because they love them. And so when the parent says don't do They don't have to hold a consequence over the child's head. The child says, mom and dad love me. They know what's best for me. And they say, don't do, so I'm not going to do. This is the kind of love that a husband and wife desire to have for one another, where I don't have to manipulate my wife into doing what what, what she should do, and she doesn't have to manipulate me. She doesn't have to nag me, and I don't have to impose sanctions upon her. Because I love her, so I'm going to serve her. And she loves me, so she's going to submit to me. This is what we all desire. We can all see glimmers of this. This is how we're to function with Christ. Now, unfortunately, sometimes our relationship with Christ uh, functions more like that dysfunctional marriage than like what it's supposed to be. But Christian... The message for you this evening is as we contemplate the love of God, may I encourage you, if there are areas of your life that are not motivated by that love, if there are areas of your life that you're holding back from God, thinking that this is something that you want and that God is attempting to keep it from you in some way, shape, or form, and so you're doing what you want to do and not what you know God wants you to do, if you're motivated by some sort of guilt or fear in what you're doing, that the only reason why you won't do something that you know you shouldn't do anyway is because you're afraid of the consequences, either divine or, or, or physical, may I encourage you, now it's good you're not doing it. May I encourage you though to, to, to reform your motivations, to spend some time meditating upon the love of God for you, to dig deeper into that so that the essence of your motivation for obedience is not guilt, fear, or shame, but is love. Reciprocated love for the tremendous love that God has shown to you. That's the call this evening as we take a moment in Jeremiah chapter 3 to stop thinking about judgments and shame and evil and just take a moment to contemplate the God that's behind it. A God who's doing this out of love, reaching out to his people, saying, return to me. I love you. He loves us. Are we treating him in accordance with the love he's shown toward us? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.